Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is Friday, the 5th of the 3rd. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been? I've been fantastic. Why? I just felt like saying something different, Gary. Are you not usually up happy and upbeat in the opening? And then you just slowly wind down like a failing piece of clockwork as the show goes on? You mean, do I start happy and unbeat and then I'm ground down by your irrepressible stoic cynicism and the particular joy you take in grinding me down to that place well then yes i would say yes that may be well true but at least you enjoy yourself gary and that's the important thing because that's what the listeners are looking for i wouldn't have thought it was the cynicism but my constant attempts to see how close i can get you to saying something grossly defamatory that won't catch me at the same time Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Sometimes I think that you get to the point where you don't even care that much, whether it catches you or not, as long as you just make me feel desperately uncomfortable. Well, you know, Michael, all men have that debt drive. Do they? Freud said it, but he was doing a lot of cocaine, so maybe we shouldn't trust him. I don't know. Kierkegaard said something about that, didn't he? About standing on the side of the precipice being caught when the, that moment when the co- the abyss calls you. But he was probably not doing a lot of cocaine at the time. No, I think he was well known for not being a big cocaine user. More a meth head, I think. But anyway. So actually, there is something. There is a, a quick. There is a quick question. What are you laughing at? There is something, it sounded, for a second there I thought, you had a connection. Actually, there is something about Kierkegaard in the papers this week I just wanted to talk about. No, I think think I'm getting getting better at the transitions, (laughs) but I haven't yet got to that level. (laughs) Anyway, I can't imagine how there would ever be a story like that in the papers, but there you go. Sorry, sorry, I'm interrupting you, Gary. Go on. Yes, there was was something I I wanted to ask the listeners if they could help us with. So I was looking at, um, I was searching through forums and and social media um, to see the response to the leaks that we did about ISAG. And you know, the whole ISAG trying to increase fear and uncertainty kind of thing, which hasn't stopped them being invited onto TV. Like, why would it? Not like there's any potential issue there. No, no, like, like we all care so desperately about people's mental health and the mental health of people who are vulnerable. So why the hell would we care about see people actively seeking to increase increase levels of anxiety, fear and insecurity? They, they are exactly the type of people you want on to talk about how the vaccination program is going. Naturally. Because that could never... That could never end badly. And it's not like some of them have been going around saying like, "Oh, you know, there'll be sixty thousand dead." But anyway, one of the um, one of the most the places I found that was most widely discussing it was Boards.ie, which I haven't been on in ages. And when I was there, I actually found a very short review thread of this podcast, and there was a comment made on it that I and Michael have try been trying to figure out. And the basic gist of the comment was that we are neither as funny or as smart as we think we are, which is perfectly fair. That's perfectly reasonable. But what he said was, have you ever wanted to watch a show of one man with a fake posh accent and one man who believes he's Malcolm Tucker? Now, Malcolm Tucker being the main character in the thick of it, who is famous for swearing, which I assume is what's happening here. And I and Michael have have been trying to figure this one out. Which one is which there? Because I think I swear more, but many people have said my accent makes no sense and must be entirely fake. Yeah, on the other hand, I don't know. It's not that I don't have an accent. I'm sure I have an accent, but I always thought of my accent as sort of generic East Coast, sort of Wicklow, Wexford, Kilkenny, not particularly. I'm sure there are certain vowels or words or phrases that when I say them, people go, oh, that's pure Wexford for you there. But maybe... My Aunt Anne was famous in the family for having a telephone voice. And when Aunt Anne would answer the phone, it was always, it was very much highest in the bouquet. So maybe this unconsciously, I'm producing this fake sort of faux posh voice for the radio, for the online listener. I don't know. But anyway, we're curious. Yeah, so if, if you have any feelings on which one of us is the one who uses incredible levels of profanity and which one of us has the fake posh voice, please do send your thoughts to me on Twitter or at Gary at gripped.ie so that I can solve this mystery. The other thing about the Malcolm Tucker reference, it might, yeah, swearing is a big part of it, but there is also the psychotic levels of violence, and that's much more you than me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's point. I, you see, no, we're not going to get into this debate now, Michael, because we've done this already. Okay. But let the listener answer this. Although even that person who clearly didn't like us 
did have to say we've gotten better. <laughs> and as I say, that's where you start at a low ebb. Absolutely. God, we've gotten better. So let's start off as we promised to start off. We said in the last episode we would talk about the ICCL and how they would come out and defend your rights to protest. We said that ironically on the assumption it's the ICCL and the one thing they're never going to do is come out and defend your right to protest. However, the ICCL actually did write to the Minister of Justice about your right to protest. But perhaps not in the way that we would historically would have expected a group dedicated to defence of civil liberties and pushing back the heavy hand of repressive government. You would have expected maybe them to write a different letter, Gary. On one hand, they said that the right to protest, you know, is a very important right. On the other hand, they did say that the government should produce detailed guidelines on how protests should be done. Yeah. Which is less protesting and more something else. (laughs) Yeah, because that's that's the way protesting works, isn't it? You send in your application... Uh, to the guards and then that's processed by the Department of Justice and let's face it people are working from home they're away from the desks uh, you choose a day a date a time uh, you don't want some sometime it's going to be too busy and affect traffic an area which is going to be you know maybe you're going to affect commerce or business so that's important too so I think we're moving away from the idea of a protest to maybe a silent candlelight vigil did you ever um did you ever hear the song Legal Illegal? Legal Illegal? No, that rings no bells. It was Ewan McCall. It's it's one of my favourite songs. It's just from that old, you know that old kind of socialist trade union musical tradition? Oh yeah. Like of men on docks writing things. But it uh, contains the verse, it's, illegal, it's legal to join a trade union and to pick it as one of your rights. Don't be offensive when scabs cross the line. Be nice to the coppers and keep this in mind. To pick it effectively, that is a crime. Worse than if you had murdered your mother. It's a similar kind of rhyming scheme and structure to uh, Tom Robinson singing If You're Glad to Be Gay, actually. Because even in prison, they're good to the queers. The same, same, must be the same meter. I'm not sure if it is worse than murdering your mother, by the way. I think that's probably a little bit of artistic license there. I, I will include a version of the song below because it's actually quite good if you like that sort of uh, protest song. But I only mention it because it's what came to mind here. Of just, now, protesting is important, but let's not lose the run of it. Let's not go too far with it. Yeah. You don't want, you know, loud, nasty protesting. Well, you might remember, Michael, that there were where there were protests during Level 5 before, the Black Lives Matter protests. Yes. But the ICCL had thoughts on those as well. They did. So did the Taoiseach, by the way, if you remember. The next day, tweeting out his support for BLM and his understanding of the anger that people felt at this time because of all the people being shot of colour in West Clare. So what was what was actually said then was the ICCL said it was surprising the Gardaí investigated people who went to the Black Lives Matter protest because protesting, Michael, was a fundamental right and also a reasonable excuse under COVID-19 regulations. A fundamental right, you say, Gary? And that was a level five protest involving up to 5,000 people. You know, somebody who didn't understand the nuances of life and politics and what's right and what's wrong would find that to be almost contradictory and incoherent. But they did write to the Minister of Justice and say the protest was all right and should not be curtailed beyond the drafting of extensive guidelines that would tell people exactly how they would go about it. Of course, breaching those guidelines, I've no doubt Michael would then, you know, you're not a protest, you're an unruly mob. In the eyes of the ICCL. But your Nazis going into the town to destroy the peace of the of the good citizens. None of that done with that kind of thing. Anyway, according to the ICCL, you know, it's clear that no one set out to intentionally flout the regulations. And criminalising people who wish to make their voices heard in our democracy is not the answer. Was what they said about the last one and we'll assume it's still roughly what they believe now. Even though they're not really saying it. For a half a second there when you were starting to read that I genuinely thought... Is this what they said about the... And then I realised, oh, no, no, it's not. Yeah, I got you there in the stairs. You did, you did, you got, you trapped me there. And I got that son, I haven't, well... The key, the key way of do, dealing with that, Michael, is think about what's happening. And if it's wonderfully... If it's the sort of thing you could talk about with friends at a dinner party and they would all agree that this was a wonderful thing, the nice thing the ICCCL is about said is about that and if it's not that or if people at the dinner party would look at you or maybe not question michael but you know take a note of it then it's not 
what the ICCL was talking about. Oh, okay. And I found that a nearly perfect system for figuring out what the ICCL will say on any issue. Well, having heard their position on it, I yet again feel reassured that we have such a, how would I say, a, a, a mastiff, a bulldog, guarding and defending the rights of the small citizen and the individual against the overpowering maw of the state. You know, if, if you didn't have someone like the ICCL there to protect us, Gary, can you imagine the state we would be in? I mean, no, because it's the state we're currently in. There's literally no difference. You should probably put a link up uh, on the podcast for people to be able to donate to the ICCL so that they can help in in their work. And they're very important work in protecting the basic civil rights and democracy that we have in the country. Without without them, we just wouldn't have it. We probably have General Ono Duffy running the country as we speak, resurrected from his tomb. I think you're laying it on a bit thick now. I think that they are so laughably incoherent and inconsistent and have so patently little care for, for civil liberties. And uh, what's the point? You know the, the Skokie story, Gary? Mm-hmm. The, the, there's a film about it which Danny Kaye stars in. The Ku Klux Klan, Skokie is a town, I think, in Illinois, near Chicago, if I'm remembering right, but it might not be. But the Ku Klux Klan were going to march through it, and Skokie had a large Jewish population, and amongst them there would have been people who were Holocaust survivors. And a lot of people in Skokie didn't want the Ku Klux Klan going through their town. But the ACLU, home of beardy, lefty, liberal, progressive types, back in the 70s, actually defended the rights of the clan because they actually believed in the old Voltairean principle, you know, I hate what you have to say, but I defend to the death your right to say it. But none of that nonsense anymore, Gary. None of that old shite. The idea that would occur to them that, you know what, if they take away one group of civil liberties today and we acquiesce, because God knows that's never happened in history, has it? That, that organisation is dead. It, it no longer exists. Something else is just wearing its skin like a cheap suit at this point. The ACLU? Yes, that has gone to meet its parrot maker in heaven. Yes, you say. Yes, it has. And the ICCL is a walking zombie of what it may once have been. I have no recollection of it ever having been any different, but it may well have been different. Presumably, at some point, it was something else. As we said, we said we would open on the ICCL, and they did a thing which was more than they had to do. So, you know, golf clap, I think. Golf Golf, golf clap. clap. No, I'm sorry, that's escaping me now. What is a golf clap, Gary? You don't know what a golf clap is? I don't want to do a Google search of it, Gary, because I'm worried that it may be some kind of far-right thing that will then just increase the far-right Google traffic for the next person. A, a golf clap is like an exaggerated, nearly silent clapping designed to show contempt or derision, or very limited amounts of approval. It is a common thing. Like like a slow clap. No, it, it's its own thing. How old are you? I, I I'm, I'm I'm having a difficulty understanding how you'd actually execute that. A clap. How can you how can you get a clap that would express that? I mean, that's like you're not far away from one hand clapping there. I'm sorry. I have sent you just there as we're recording this, a history of the golf clap. When I'm on the point of death from boredom, I'll open that up and read it. Anyway, Gary. I mean, you derailed the podcast to a discussion of it. Oh, God, we've gone veering off a mountain and we're now crashing to a demise because I've derailed the podcast. Back to the point. The far right point. (laughs) The point. When did we ever stick to the point? So you may, uh, this is a story mostly about a story. It's a meta story, I suppose you could say. You may have seen reports in the last day or so that said that Ireland has an unusually high proportion of people researching far-right topics and you may have read some of these stories and been left with a a very particular idea of exactly what's happening here uh unfortunately not a terribly accurate idea i was reading the, the irish times had one of the stories on this and it was it was titled unusually high proportion of young males researching far right topics it's by connor gallagher a man who has never seen anything that isn't a member of the far right or a potential target of the far right. Okay. If you go into it, you get uh, seven paragraphs in, Michael, before he actually tells you how many searches have been conducted. This entire story on the fact that these people are searching online for these things 
seven paragraphs before he actually goes, this is how many searches were actually conducted. Uh, the Irish Examiner was better in that they put it in the headline because they don't want people to read their stories. <laughs> what do they which want? I, I must admire. It's like a poisonous animal, which is just a luminous colour. It's letting you know. Don't eat me. And if you do, that's your own fault. So the Irish Examiner headline is over 9,000 searches relating to far-right topics made by Irish people in past six months. Yes. So this is based on not a report, but an infographic that was put together by a crowd called Moonshot, who are one of the endless array of anti-extremism analysts. Mm -hmm. So I had a look at it. The infographic is literally a page long. Now, the Irish Times did a... They talked to, I think, the CEO of it. I don't know if the examiner did or if they based their entire story on this infographic. And um, let me just put it this way. If it wasn't for a very large and totally unnecessary picture of Ireland, you could have fit this into the half page. I'll give you an idea of how, of how high quality this is. It gives an age breakdown and a gender breakdown. Yeah, this is very good. I like this. That age could not be determined for 64.3% of searchers and gender could not be determined for 63.7% of all searches, which is to say this is entirely useless. But they then, having said that for, in two-thirds of cases they can they cannot just, just determine gender or age, they then give you a breakdown of the searches by gender and by age, which is fantastic. What they do not include is the actual terms that people look for. They say that they're a white nationalist and far-right extremist, things, propaganda, extremist music, attempts to join or contact extremist groups, and common extremist conspiracy theories. And they give an example of one, which is the Great Replacement, but they don't actually say what else they looked for. So if this is all you have, and this is all that's on the website, I've reached out to them to try and actually get the actual terms, you have no way of knowing what's actually happening here. So, and I mean, that ignores the other point, that it then says that... Um, <laughs> it says, although smaller in number than their US or UK counterparts, the Irish far-right extremist audience is actively searching for highly niche extremist material. This could indicate that Ireland has a small but dedicated far-right scene. I love, but Gary, don't you just love the could? I also like the fact they say the Irish far-right extremist audience, given that they cannot actually show why these people were searching for these things. So an academic searching for this or someone who had heard about the great replacement and looking for it is not part of any far-right extremist audience but because they cannot differentiate they're just saying it now here's the other thing though and this is the one i actually i did a little bit of quick math on this michael and the important thing about quick math is quick math might not be correct it's quick yeah never promised anything else they say nine thousand google searches over six months yes i look online to see how many searches do most people make a day? Which is actually surprisingly difficult to pin down. I decided I would go with four because some of the larger SEO sites said actually give wildly divergent figures. But four was at the lower band and it looked reasonable. Ireland has a population of what, Michael? 4.5 million now? It's probably a little bit more. For the sake of quick maths, we'll say four and a half million, yeah. Yeah, that's... um. That's a grand total of Google searches over six months of uh, 3,240,000,000. Now, if my maths is correct here, Michael, that means that one in every 360,000 searches was for something that this crowd says was related to the far right or extremism more generally, uh, but which they provide no detail with to actually tell. We, we see that the peak... Uh, was 436 on the 23rd of October 2020. 116 searches for the Great Replacement. Now, the, it is a very big peak. I have no way of knowing, but I'd be curious to the context of that. Was there, for example, a documentary on the History Channel where people were talking about, oh, God knows, something in the, the KKK or far-right conspiracies. Louis Theroux was doing a weird weekend and people referred to the Great Replacement and somebody said, oh, What's the Great Replacement in a way they went to Google? Gary, I suspect you, you, yes, you, are personally responsible for some of this traffic. You have a fondness for referring to an, an Italian, let's call him philosopher. With, our, with the listener size of TRSI and the fact that 
I would occasionally, and Michael would occasionally, mention things that could have triggered this. It is possible the TRSI listeners are a statistically significant amount of this purely from going, who the fuck is Julius Avola? Now, and that's the correct response, by the way, at any time to anybody ever mentioning Julius Avola. Who the fuck is he? Uh, and then leave us alone because you really don't need to know. Now, the fact is, I would say in our conversations on this, whatever sad, pathetic reasons there are behind it, his name has probably been mentioned in our conversations more than anybody else in Ireland in the last five years. So, if you had any number of people out there who, at different stages in three or four different podcasts, listened and thought, who the hell is Julius Avola? And they went off on Google. With the numbers we're talking about here, there would be a statistical really chance that they actually would have influence on the numbers. Also, how can they, and in fact, they, they can't, and they know they can't. Dublin has the biggest number, and that could mean something, but it also contains more universities and places of higher learning than all the rest of the country. So you have more students. Like, Leaving sort of students, Gary, do the rise of the Nazis in the Second World War. So if somebody is Googling something to do with Mein Kampf, does that appear as a far-right search? I mean, to be honest with you, I would really like to see what the, the al- this algorithm is, whatever you want to call it. What, was the, what are the parameters of the search that they, they, they limited to? Because Surely more than 9,000 people a year must Google Mein Kampf. Well, here's another one. So the Irish Times talked to the, the CEO of this, this crowd, and they've got a bit more data. They say more than 1,000 of those searches were for the name of a Serbian nationalist song, which is popular with right-wing extremists. And I immediately knew which song they were talking about. I am not surprised. Because the song is actually, it's it's very well known. If you've ever been on any of the chans, you will have seen the song. And even if you haven't, you will have seen the song. It's a song, if you've ever heard the phrase, Michael, remove kebab, it's a Serbian nationalist music video, which is used as a meme. It's a joke. It's not actually used to display any sort of... Um, is this from the Serbian thrash metal scene? No, if you've ever seen it, it's a picture of, um, it's a video of two soldiers in a field and one of them has an accordion and one has a trumpet. Right. It's sometimes called uh, Serbia Strong. But it's a kind of a 4 chan thing. It's a thing on 4chan, is it? Yeah, no, it, it, it is a joke. So it was, it is popular with the right wing and it was popular with the alt-right. And, um, but it is also one of the most common memes ever created. So if you're looking at that and saying anyone who searches for it is part of a far-right extremist movement, you either don't know what you're doing or you do know what you're doing and you would really like to inflate some numbers. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I just wanted to mention it because I had seen it and I was like, oh, this could actually be some interesting research. And then I looked at it and I was like, oh, no, it's the standard garbage. Well, I do think it does tell you something. that If it has any demonstrative value, it is that there is fuck all of a far right in Ireland. As I said, yeah, one in every 360,000 internet searches in the country. Allowing the fact that I suspect that a lot of these searches are nothing to do with people who are in the far right. For, I mean, you're talking about a meme which is, you're saying, very, very popular, which they just, that in itself, if there were a thousand searches for that, out of 9,000, that itself is going to massively skew the thing. It tells us that what we have been saying for some time, the belief that the far right in Ireland could fun- could comfortably fit into the back room in Donoghue's, even though I'm sure that that, is not, that was not the intention. Not to be the usual boring whataboutery type, Gary, I would be curious that if you were to use this, a similar approach to the far left, however you choose to define that, what the results would be. Like people praising or seeking out positive re- assessments of, say, the October Revolution or the five-year plan or Lenin or Stalin or Trotsky or Mao or so on and so forth, or people looking up the little red book, or Lenin's call to action, stuff like that. You know, that'd be curious. Anyway, well, this, so anyway, folks, if you hear about this interesting piece of uh, 
data which has been mined from searches uh, and young people, particularly young men in Dublin who are fermenting in the far right, that's what they're talking about. So you can take it as seriously as you wish. Yeah, and um, as I said, I have reached out to them. I'll try and get the actual terms. If we get the terms, we'll run through them on the show. It may be that the terms are actually, outside of stuff like that, are actually quite strongly correlated. Yeah. But um, this sort of company is pretty common. You get these kind of analysts who will offer their services to various government, NGO, and commercial interests. And they are generally relatively similar in how they behave, whether they're this or whether they're, you know, something like Kinzen or something. They they tend not to be very good, would be my general thought on it. A lot of them will talk about things, particularly things to do with right-wing extremism that you read and you immediately realise that this person actually... It's not that I disagree with them. They don't understand what they're talking about. They do not get the chance or they do not get that culture. And and they shouldn't be trying to analyze it, uh, analyze it because they just don't get it. The uh, the Irish Times, Conor Gallagher's one, it's worth reading just so you can give an example of if you have a really weak story, how to make it more of a story because you can't just go the Irish Examiner way and put the number in the headline because then... Like, no one's going to read that. And, you know, get it like seven, eight paragraphs in. By that point, they've already committed. They're not going to admit this was a waste of time that far in. And see, what people do there is an economic mistake. It's the economic fallacy of sunk capital. They'd say, oh, well, I've got this far in. I might as well finish it. When actually, the sensible thing is to get to that point and say, okay, I'm stopping reading now. Unusually high proportion of searches. 9,000 searches. Some are calling on the government to enact laws. And again, you sort of go one in every 360,000 and some. Who exactly is that? But experts have called. Analyzing extremists to a more basic fact check, Michael. Oh, God, fact checks. More fact checks. Fact checks. Let's talk about the journal. Uh, The next part in a series I am informally calling I Don't Have Enough Friends in Media and I Would Like to Never Make Them. It's like you never read Norman Vincent Peale, Gary. I want my copy of that book that I lent you back because it's not doing any bloody good in your house. So I I wrote a story there about the journal. The journal published a fact check of a leaflet put together by Renewa, the Irish Freedom Party, and Direct Democracy Ireland. And it was mostly about, um, I could fairly say, an anti-lockdown, or at least anti-this lockdown. Yeah. Peace. And in doing so, the journal didn't abide by their methodology. The journal is a signatory of a crowd called the IFCN's Code of Principles. The IFCN is the International Fact-Checking Association, or sorry, uh, Fact-Checking Network. And they effectively accredit fact-checkers, some of the world's most prestigious fact-checkers, as being of, you know, a high calibre. And that is actually quite impactful because the IFCN is recognized by a number of entities like Facebook. So if you are an IFCN accredited fact checker, you can be taken on board by Facebook as one of their fact checkers, meaning that you will get cash and you will get the ability to control a certain degree of the flow of information through Facebook, which Uh is obviously of immense importance. So it's a big deal. And... The journal is one of their signatories. That's how they became a fact checker with uh, the IFCN. And when I was reading the fact check, I noticed the article on the face of it looked like it broke one of the articles of the IFCN's Code of Principles. Because the IFCN's code requires fact checkers to publish their methodology in full so that the public can see it. And the journal had published a methodology which said they would use verdicts at the end of their things, and they explained what each verdict is. So if you see a journal fact check, and it says verdict false, or verdict mostly true, there is an actual definition of that. And you can go and you can look at the definition, and if you don't think that's fair, you can complain to the journal, or you can complain to the IFCN. But they didn't do that in this case, for whatever reason. I would suspect there is a particular reason, but I would just say for whatever reason. That was not done in this case. So I went to, you know, the journal and I asked them why they hadn't done it. And the journal, Michael, you might be shocked to hear, did not get back to me. Shocked and horrified. So, you know, I, you know, I could have left it there, Michael, done the sensible thing, just walked away. But I said, fuck it, I'll go to the IFCN. And I managed to get in touch with the executive director of the IFCN, 
and I asked him multiple times was this an issue, that the journal was not using the methodology it said it would use. And, you know, when someone is, um, they're either just not getting it, or they're deliberately misconstruing your questions, so they can give you an answer that sounds like an answer, but actually isn't. Well, yeah, in the, 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 the knowledge rooted in experience, if you do that around three times, most people will just say, oh, well, fuck it, go away. Yeah, yeah, I didn't do that. Well, that, again, amazes me that you didn't do that, Gary. Yeah, so they, they started, I kept asking, I was like, the journal is, is going against its methodology, and they kept saying, our, you know, our principles don't require a verdict. And I had to keep going, the issue is not the verdict, the issue is deviation from an established methodology, which appears on the face of it to be a breach of Article 4. And I was thinking, there's no way this isn't a breach of Article 4. But Michael, I have learned that there are levels of lateral thinking that I hadn't even known of up to this point. Because eventually, when I just kept going at the chief executive, and it got to the point where, you, you know, sometimes in logical philosophy, Michael, they'll just cut out all of the conjoining words, and all you have is a series of very short sentences, just statements, like, a leads to B, B leads to C, C leads to D, D is this. You're constructing it as a long syllogism. So it's just like, this is my actual question, not what you are answering, and then I had to do that. And then he got back to me and he said, <clears throat> if the journal did not give a verdict in that content, it was not a fact check. It was non-fact checking content, which they host on their website. Given that, I don't see any issues here, and I have nothing further to add. Which I had not honestly expected, because oh, it's you know, openly ridiculous, firstly. But you kind of, when you go to someone, you go, I think this, per this organization is breaching your um, principles. Are you going to, you know, do you have a comment on that? You don't accept someone to come back with an answer that basically means, well, we don't care about that principle. Because what they were saying was that the journal has to state its methodology, as any signatory does. But if they don't apply that methodology, then it is not a fact check. And not being a fact check cannot breach Article 4, which is to say any signatory of the IFCN Code of Principles cannot breach Article 4 if they do not abide by their own methodology. Because then it's not a fact check. <laughs> you have to say it's neat. I mean, it's... It it's very handy, you know. It is, but it, it's... I, I think there is legitimately a story there because the IFCN is, is incredibly well regarded. And they basically, rather than just say, that looks like an error, we'll reach out to them to see if they'll correct it. They instead decided to basically negate one of their principles. And I think there are only five in the Code of Principles so I've effectively managed to destroy 20% of the IFCN's Code of Principles without meaning to. Well, I was wondering what they're, what, they're, what they're actually saying is, we're only in charge of fact checks. If it does this, it's a fact check. If it doesn't do this, it's not a fact check. If it's not a fact check, it's nothing to do with us. So move along, please. There is, there, the, the only problem with that was, I said, imagine on the graphic, produced by the journal, there may have been what one might regard on that basis as some misleading information. I mean, an unkind person, Michael, might say, but I, of course, couldn't comment, that it might be misinformation. Because it was perhaps called a fact check? It's in the section of the journal's website, which is titled Fact Check. Okay. And the headline did say, Fact Check. Okay. And there was a graphic under the headline that said, the journal fact check and there was at the end of it a note that the journal fact check is a signatory of the IFCN's code of principles and that you can read them here you see Gary the mistake you've made there and I understand it is unlike myself you're not actually trained formally in philosophy and logic what you've done is imagine you've gone to the zoo right and there's a sign which says this way to the bear enclosure you go into the bear enclosure and then you go in front of a thing and there's a sign saying grizzly bear in front of you. And then behind it, there's a big sign saying 
grizzly bear enclosure. And in front of you, you see what to you looks like maybe a kangaroo. And you say, but it mustn't be a kangaroo because it's in the bear enclosure. It is in fact in the bear enclosure, but it's still a kangaroo. And the mistake is ultimately yours, it's not theirs. While it's in the fact check section, it's not actually a fact check. And you should be able to recognize that because you should be able to tell the difference between a grizzly bear and a kangaroo. I hope I've made myself clear. Well, I mean, Michael, I think I can tell the difference as I wrote an entire story on the difference. Uh, but it sounds like you didn't because it sounds like you still think that there is some significance to the fact that this not fact check was called a fact check. Well, obviously, I, Michael, knowing it is not a fact check, was not in any way bamboozled by it. Ah, yes. But I would, you know, I think it is important that I take the high road here and think of other people, such as would a like a reasonable member of the public, having clicked on the fact check section of the journal's thing and seen the headline of fact check and the graphic of fact check and the IFCN uh, code of principles link and also the part where it said hashtag fact check, would they have been able to look at that, Michael, and realise? This is a kangaroo dressed as a bear. I have more confidence in the general public, Gary, than you, and their, in an, their analytic uh, abilities. And I'm sure that most of the general, general public can tell the difference between a kangaroo and a grizzly bear. I, and, and listen, if, if, if by accident a kangaroo did get into the grizzly bear enclosure, I'm sure that the, that the good people at the journal will be quick to remove it and probably apologize to the people for letting the kangaroo in and make a statement saying we are we're sorry about this we have changed the signage and this is now a kangaroo well michael it's funny you say that because i'm actually working on a follow-on story right now and it may actually be up before this podcast go live uh, goes live uh it's got um shall we say it's, we're going to put a, a lot of legal attention on the exact wording of this article. Oh, uh, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I'm not involved. I didn't say any of this. But you see, I just, I, some, I, I opened up the journal's fact check section and I thought to myself, okay, if what they're saying is anything that doesn't have a verdict is not a fact check, according to the group, which certifies the journal as a fact checker, how much of the stuff that's published under their fact check section is actually a fact check. And I don't mean is right or wrong. I mean meets the basic criteria for the IFCN to consider it a fact check. And I, you know, I, I, I opened up the website and I just picked the first four stories, Michael. And none of them met the definition of a fact check. Zero. The first four stories in the, in the fact check section, uh, all of which have hashtag fact check above them. None of them met the definition of a story, of a, a fact check. They were all non-fact-checking content, according to the crowd, which certifies the uh, journal as a fact-checker. But all self-identified as fact-checks. Well, no, not all of them. I mean, some did, and I feel we have to respect that lifestyle choice. But some were, they said fact-find. Some said debunked, but then they would say hashtag fact-check to the side of them. Some were not. Uh, classed as fact checks but had verdicts in them some fact checks didn't have verdicts but i think because they're all in the fact check section and they all have the ifcn code of principles that we should consider them all fact checks regardless of you know what dress they have on so i went through every fact check that the journal had published this year michael went back to uh january the first and i came to a uh, a shocking Realisation, Michael. Why, and what was that? If you take everything that was put into the journal's fact-check section, which they say is their archive of fact-checks, regardless of the title it has on it, 66% of everything they've published does not meet the definition of a fact-check. As you understand that from the prescriptive guidelines laid down by the International Authority. Clerical error editing problem there's probably an intern gary you know there's a lot of interns making mistakes all over the gaff who very often have to be fired 
many of them have very easy to make up first names and no second names as well. I found. Yeah, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of Michael Doyle's and Maeve Murphy's get sacked. Yeah, yeah, but I just I find it a bit curious that two thirds of everything under you know if you go to the journal.ie forward slash fact check forward slash news two thirds of the content you will find going back to the start of the year is non-fact-checking content. Despite the fact that quite a lot of it has graphics in it that say, fact-check. I'm sure there's an explanation. I'm sure there is. And I'm sure that when you get it, you will come back to us and you'll tell us all about it. I mean, I'm sure there is. And it's not like, I mean, the IFCN, in order to avoid embarrassing a member which it closely politically agrees with, made some sort of off-the-cuff comment that has absolutely no truth behind it and which now I have become determined to make as large a problem for them as possible. Yeah. <laughs> I do imagine that the, that, that the IFCN must receive an interminable number of communications from people regarding the fact checks uh, in some way personally connected to them demanding retractions and changes. It's... It's not a job I would choose. I mean, it is basically like sitting, sitting on top of a pole in the middle of a in, in the middle of the, in a war and saying, "Shoot at me." I I would imagine they do, but I didn't go to any of those people. I went directly to the chief executive, which actually I think makes this slightly more awkward because you can't blame the intern then, can you? I'm always baffled by the way you get to talk to these people. I would never talk to you. I I am told from people who have received emails from me, questioning emails, and then later met me. That it's not a pleasant experience. I the like. I mean, I wouldn't talk to anybody like you, let alone you. I would have. I there would be a permanent intern remand answering the phone. No, no, no. He's not here. He's where is he? He's gone to. He's in outer space with Elon Musk, and not a chance. God. Well, I t- I tend to be very polite to people, and I do legitimately try and be fair with them, and I think that comes across. It's just I don't tend to stop. Ever. Yeah, you're a bit like a disease with no cure. Thanks, Michael. Well, I try to be supportive. I feel it's my duty. It's a collegial thing, a colleague thing. Anyway, generally speaking, I'm a nurturer. It's my nature. And as they say in the Irish, Mulignogi August... I can't remember the rest of that. August Chukichi. Surely in this instance you'd be more of an incubator. <laughs> Or a transmit? Oh no, maybe a transmitter. Anyway, Shinobit, I would be very, I'd be very curious to see what the response is, either from the journal itself, or indeed, maybe if we have more, if word back from the the international body, if they have changed their mind. I would be quite curious about that, but it's not actually the answer I'm most curious to see, Michael. Uh, what, what is the answer you are most curious to see? Facebook's one. Oh, because I I thought that considering that only thirty three percent of everything that's in this section is actually a fact check, yes. and the IFCN seems to think that if one of their signatories writes something and says it's a fact check, but it doesn't meet their methodology, then it doesn't actually have to abide by any of the requirements of the IFCN code of principles, which is required to be a Facebook fact checker. I thought that might be something that Facebook would be interested in. And I would, you know, I was personally very interested to see what their comment on that would be. So I, of course, reached out to, you know, some people I know in Facebook and their press office with some detailed questions about the safeguards that were in place and just generally if they were aware that the IFCN took this approach to Article 4. And, you know, did they think they took this approach to any other articles? It would be interesting, yes. Yeah, the money, money... I think I, I think what I will do, Michael, is I may, if I can get grip to agree with it, I may do a verification service on <laughs> journal fact checks. Oh. And what I'll do is, is every time one happens, I can then go, this is a fact check and not, you know, not a fact check. Because according to the IFCN, fact checks, fake fact checks, like not non-fact checking content can be labelled as a fact check, can have graphics in it saying it's a fact check, can be done by the fact checkers, can be in the fact check section, and can link back to the IFCN, but not be a fact check. So I think that, um, you know, the journal, in order to um, salvage its reputation, will need a, uh, a third party to 
look at it and say this is a fact check and that isn't a fact check. And I hope, Michael, that working together, gripped in the journal, we can, you know, we can get to a level where at least half of all journal fact checks meet the basic criteria to be a fact check. You love to help, don't you? I do. And you know, Michael, I think when we get over 50%, I'll send them a certificate. Send them an invoice. No, no, Michael. This is a public service. I will say, the the thing that this story really reminded me of is how fun the internet used to be. Do you remember before the internet was a place where you would go to have your career destroyed and your name smeared? Yeah. It was anarchic and it was fun. That feels like a very long time ago. And this is just a fun story. It's just funny. I mean, when they told me it's just not a fact check, it's just sort of a, oh, oh, well, okay, then, if that's, if that's what you want to say, I'm happy to report it. It's not what I would have said, but I respect your choices. <laughs> Moving on. I don't think there's anything to move on to. I think we've reached the hour. Were we not going to talk about, um, briefly, about a, a vaccine-related story? Oh, please go ahead. Um, we had... Well, we we had the announcement uh, of the figures, and to everybody's astonishment, we have fallen again short. But apparently, Gary, it's the GP's fault. According to internal HSE documents, yes. And then it's it's AstraZeneca's fault. I seem to remember that we were told that it was all back because AstraZeneca only told us in the middle of the week, was it, Gary, that uh, they weren't going to come up with the goods. But does that tie in with the requirements of the the contractual requirements of, of, of advice that AstraZeneca would have given to the EU? Well, I had thought there was a contractual obligation on AstraZeneca to give earlier warning. And in fact, I do remember AstraZeneca saying earlier that there may be disruptions. And in fact, I remember Michal Martin coming out and saying there will be disruptions, but that that wouldn't affect the actual vaccination program. So unless those were different disruptions, and this one is entirely new, which I suppose it could be, that wouldn't um, that wouldn't really gel. I mean, there's also the fact that when it became clear they weren't going to hit the 100,000 target, they started briefing journalists that they were going to get about eighty nine to 91,000, which we didn't do. We got about 82,000, I think, somewhere in that region. So still about 10% off. But that particular detail, I just wanted, I mean, just in passing, this is not a big story, but in passing to advert to, they started briefing in the middle of the process, I mean, in the same time when the actual thing is ongoing, that they're going to hit between 89 and 90 odd thousand vaccinations, they end up falling around 7,000, 8,000 short of that. They can't even brief, do a backstairs briefing, right? I mean, if you're going to do a backstairs briefing on the back of the fact that you're not going to actually get the total and you're briefing against you're against the GPs and you're you're briefing against the fact that they, they won't work on Saturdays or Sundays and that's the real problem. And you still you, you you're briefing about the fact that you actually have organized properly for supplies and all that, but AstraZeneca have let you down. And we were only told this week, even though they would have been told you would have told them the month before. You can't even get the number right. They can't even look at the numbers and say, Well actually we're if you go to the back room, a backstairs briefing, you have you, what's the unless you get the number right, you just end up like an even bigger gobshite than you did before. And all of this has been done through the optic. When you you turn on the radio and you hear about the problems with the rollout, and we're now getting into the third month, into the third month of the rollout, rollout, and it's all the line is, it's a communications problem, Gary. It's all about communications, and the GPs are, by the way very pissed off because the GPs are saying we're getting blanked because we're setting up appointments and we're telling people coming in and then rather than the fact that the GPs are not working uh, as they should be and GPs are not working weekends it's because GPs are telling the country and GPs have been telling me that they haven't got the vaccines and you know what Gary it is remarkably difficult to give people a vaccine that you don't have I mean there was also the uh, fun story 
about the chap who got the vaccines, but not the syringes. And they'd promised to give him the syringes as well, and then they just didn't turn up. And he had to go driving around the county trying to get syringes. So, the story, as it's being framed as a response to this, well, how's it going? It's going, it's right. but there are, no doubt, there are communications problems. And, communi- and we should have communicated better with GPs. And the GPs would have been in a position to talk to their patients, who obviously are worried and anxious and are really looking forward to getting it. And, we, and the line was, if only we had better communications, Gary, it would all be all right. This was very much the framing of the stories that I was hearing on the radio. No! The point of this exercise is not to talk to people, it is to vaccinate the people. And the problem is not ringing up the GPs and saying, we should have told you that you're not getting the vaccination, the, the vaccines. That's not the problem, the fact they didn't ring the GPs. The problem is they didn't give the GPs the vaccine. I mean, how hard is this to understand? They're not fucking giving the vaccines, and why? We were told... Faradkar stood up and said, if you, I don't know if you noticed, that we were looking into the possibilities, right? Looking into the possibilities of sourcing vaccines outside of the EU deal. Brackets, which is, which is now permitted, by the way, by the EU. Nothing has been done. Nothing has been changed. No legislation at a European Parliament level. But now it's permitted for some reason that it previously wasn't permitted. At the same days, we read that not just Slovakia, but also the Czech Republic is accessed but he said, you know, there's a shortage in the world market. How can we get it? The Hungarians, the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Maltese, these economic superpowers who are plugged into the global network can get it. We can't. And the fact that the Russians have let it be known fairly widely now that we offered it to us five weeks ago and we turned it down. And no, we couldn't get it because there's a shortage in the world market. And then we're told we wouldn't be using anything that wasn't approved by the EMA anyway. By the way, it's now being rolled out. It's being tested by the EMA. I, I did quite enjoy the sort of, it's not our fault. It's a supply issue, which is a line I've actually heard from government. Oh, yes. Yeah. And you sort of go, didn't you negotiate the supply, though? And didn't you then say you wouldn't go outside that to secure additional vaccines and isn't it only now, when more and more countries in the EU are doing that, that you have decided, actually, you know what, we're going to think about that. But you mentioned communication there, Michael. And you know, communication will not get the job done. But it can be very helpful on certain things, like ensuring public compliance, because you need to actually convince people. But here's a, here's, here's a, here's a, something I want to I give you. Just here, you, you probably haven't seen this. It was from Michael Lehane who, for those who don't know, is, is a political correspondent with RTA. It was a tweet he sent out on the 3rd of March at 9pm. And I think this is when the Fianna Fáil parliamentary uh, party meeting was on. Yeah. And he said, Thishok tells colleagues that the government will now engage with the HSE to ensure there is proper communication about vaccine rollouts, including a proposal to have a direct line for queries. Yeah, yes. And indeed, there was, that was Wednesday. Yeah, in fact, and this was something that the, the GPs have been talking about, that previously they'd been assured that there would be a, a specified place where online they could communicate. And they tried, and it failed. Now they were told, okay, it's okay, there will be a telephone number. But it took them to, I mean, oh, sweet Jesus. Okay, it's like when we get the vaccines in, well, we can't put them out because we're doing consent training. Then we get to this, and it's like, oh, we'll set up a, a communications uh, line. Now that we haven't done that and it's become a disaster, as opposed to going before we did it, what will we need when we're doing this? And you see it in everything. You see it in the rapid testing. They're now saying absolutely critical, you know, key things in some of the, uh, one of the cabinet's leaked memos. I think the Irish examiner had it. They've been at least six months being told that. Hostile, actively hostile to it. But all the time being told by business groups that these were necessary and the accuracy concerns wouldn't actually be a concern when you actually look at the cumulative accuracy of them because you can use them so frequently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've seen that every decision they've had to make has been made after it should have been made when a problem has become clear. Even when those problems are clearly coming down the line, at no point do they actually seem to have went well, we need to do this now so that that problem will be avoided. It's like a ship that is going out of its way to ram headfirst into every issue it can find so that it can later manoeuvre around them. 
It's like a man waking up every weekend, every Monday, every Monday waking up and is terrified and surprised by the fact that it's Monday. Because so unpredictable. How, who could have known it would be Monday? Even though it was Sunday, I suppose. But you know, it's all very well in hindsight. And there's people have said this to me, Gary. Oh, it's all very well in hindsight. This is not hindsight. This is, this is sight. This is just looking. This, there's no fucking magic to this. The, the thing then is, then, then they kind of go, well, what would you do now? And it's sort of a Sir, a, a Sir, you know, Sir Humphrey's kind of moment of, well, we would have done something. It was too late to do it now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I say it is, yes, because you keep failing to do something. And when people say you should do it, you have a fucking report. And then by the time it's finished, oh, it's too late to do anything, which is grand in the normal, you know, order of things. But here you're kind of killing people. And I mean that in a literal sense. In the literal sense, that's one of the things that we, I, we, I adverted to before. I, I, that really pisses me off. When we have been listening to so many finger-pointing, overreaction, pious, scrupulosity, head the balls, in the government and outside of it, pointing at people who are caught walking 10 miles away from their home, or who have been caught five people in a garden drinking tea and talking to each other, or in the outlandish, egregious examples, having protest marches outside the customs house or in Dublin. Now, I'm not saying that anybody should break the rules. But when people go, oh, my God, you're killing granny. Oh, my God, when you think of the sacrifices the people on the front line are putting in, the single institution most responsible, ultimately, for more people becoming ill and dying because of this pandemic are not the people who are going protesting. There are people who would normally reside in Leinster House on Kildare Street. And that's, I, I don't think that's outlandish or rhetorical or excessive. Every single day that goes by, every week where people go unvaccinated where they could have been vaccinated is ultimately their responsibility. Now, you might say, well, it's all very easy for you. Yeah, well, I wasn't foolish enough to get elected to the doll and then get elected as Taoiseach. So, you know what? My responsibility stops basically outside my door. I'm not the Taoiseach. These people are. They've actively sought out. They've spent their lives in preparation to be who they are. They have responsibilities. And it is not acceptable to go... Oh, well, yes, we could have done that, but, you know, we can't do it now. It's too late and let, it's time to move on. Which is the response we're getting? I do remember months and months ago, we were talking about this, and I said that I had a bad feeling about it for the very simple reason that no one is, no single person is responsible for this. And in politics, if you think something is going to be successful, you want your name on it, whether or not it's you know funding for a local arts project or whether or not it's something of national importance. You want your name on it. And the fact that politicians and civil servants were trying to get as far away from this thing as possible indicated that internally they think this is only going one way. Yeah, but Gary, I think there's another side to that as well. I think that that part is the truth, but it's also a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think on while you, you might want to stay away from it, it was also an opportunity to be a star. I mean, if you're a person who has faith in their ability and their competence and their willingness to drive things. Have you ever heard the phrase that the worst hell is where you have all of the responsibility and none of the power? Yeah, well, that's the point. You give people power. You give people authority. One of the reasons behind the success so far of the rollout in the United Kingdom may well be the fact that Johnson appointed a person. And ultimately, there was one person who was involved in all of the preparation and the choosing of the vaccines, the contractual obligations, and so on. If you're behind Mark, you, 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 you pick someone. You say, okay, your job, you're doing the vaccine. Now, obviously, it's going to be certain to certainly curtailed because, well, not really. I mean, stuff regarding the, the nature of the lockdown and regulations and stuff like that, that, that will change depending on what way the wind is blowing and how successful ISAG has been in Noblin, the minister, or what Neffet is saying. But as regards the operation of it, I don't believe, Gary, that as dysfunctional as the HSE might be, I don't think it's any 
it can't be that much more dysfunctional than the, the, the National Health Service in the UK. And also, it has now gone beyond it. It's now out into the GP practices. And the GPs tend to be private private individuals and private businesses. And I could am going to be interested in maximizing the thing. I think that somebody properly, a, a competent person, properly chosen and properly tasked and, and empowered could drive this. But right now, Nothing is joined up, nothing is connected, but also ultimately there is a lack of responsibility that the government is taking and the fact that they have been put to puzzles about taking into account the fact that they knew and they must have known that they were facing into a shortage and in the first quarter and running into the second quarter, a potential shortage, an actual shortage of the vaccines and they have not dealt with that and that is their fault. We know how this is going to end because we've known how this was going to end since actually quite uh, quite early into this. We know how this is going to end because once it got into the nursing homes and the government's actions there, their failures there and the policies there, hundreds of people died unnecessarily. So this was always going to end with hundreds of people dying due to government ineptitude. The exact numbers are going to vary. And if the vaccine program goes well, less will die and you know we'll have a happier ending and people may be far more willing to forget the start and put it down to inexperience or whatever yeah but that's the that's the ending to this story and that's that's the ending we're desperately hoping for i mean but my i suppose i'm shall we say a little irascible about this because i had thought you know it'll get going it'll get going it'll get going and eventually when we were talking, and the minister was talking about doing 250,000 vaccinations in a week to hit a million a month for this. I thought, great, fantastic. Right now, Gary, I'm beginning to worry that there are signs that, as constituted, this system isn't capable. My hope is, my earnest hope, is that ultimately all of this is actually about uh, a, re a supply issue which they haven't been fully frank about because they're starting to get a sense of a bit of a pressure about the fact that they haven't done anything about the supply. They thought they could they could sail on the supply problem that ultimately, well, it was all Europe, so we can, as we as Irish politicians love to do, oh, well, it was Brussels, we can do nothing about that. That was working for a while. There's a sort of a sense now for the last little while that blaming Europe for the choices we made regarding sourcing isn't really working. So they've been a little bit more quiet on that. I'm hoping it's a supply issue because with the Johnson Johnson coming on board and CureVac and Corvax all coming, all being checked and with other other vaccines and other larger amounts of vaccines coming into the in this available in the second quarter, that we can do it. But I'm starting to get worried that this system, as it is, and and I think your point is central to it. When we talk to people out who are dealing with this, nobody knows who's running it. Nobody. Nobody. Is it the HSE? If it's the HSE, who is it in the HSE? What department is it? And the HSE is now just passing it gently on to the GPs. And the GPs are trying to deal with the HSE, but the, 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 the dedicated t telephone number is not working. They're not getting, they're not getting the information that they, they, that they need or they want to access. So if people do get to a certain point when, and I'm tired of people saying, oh, you can't protest. Well, I think that there's going to be a certain point, point where we're going to need some kind of protest, if nothing else, to send a message to the people in government, get this right and get it right very quickly. Are you going to be unemployed very, very soon? I, I wrote a story on February the 11th called Irish vaccination numbers appear to have collapsed. And it was incredibly low. I think we'd done... 1200 people on a day on one of the days 8th of february maybe and i said that um this is incredibly chaotic hospitals don't know what's happening here and that there is a hope that uh, when this goes outside the numbers are going to pick up and the point i made was that i'd actually expect the numbers to go down because once you move outside the hospitals you're in you're no longer in controllable territory you're in open territory. Yeah. And, and over yeah, the last yeah. kind of two weeks, I kind of assumed I was wrong about that. But now what we're hearing from the GPs, and I mean, I've heard words like amateurish, chaotic, deeply worrying, um, not up to the task, not scalable, 
I think, actually, maybe I was right. But the initial bump of supply pushed up the numbers. And that's when they ran into problems. But, uh, yeah, we will see. We will see what happens with this. It's it's very difficult to tell what's happening here. Because the HSE and the department will not release enough information for anyone to draw conclusions from this. So there's this constant feeling of, you see movement and you go, is that important? Is that important? Does, does this impact on anything? And there's no person you can go to or document you can look at and go, well, this was meant to happen, but instead this will happen if this happens. There's nothing like that. No, I think even within the HSE, it seems to me from talking to a couple of people that there's, it's not even in bad faith that there's just a, there are bifur, there's a bifurcation of responsibilities regarding collecting different, collecting data and doing different things. And it is, it's an awful cliche, but it is not joined up. But listen, we hope it works. Listen, uh, we have gone back over the territory which we have ploughed before, and I'm sure we will return to plough again. But we shall be back on Sunday um, with more funny and fabulous stories from Ireland and around the world. But until then, I suppose, oh, well, we, if, you know, if there aren't any, I think we should seize our responsibilities and take them seriously and make up something funny. Uh, earthquakes in Antrim. With my fake potch voice, and you can swear a lot. But until then, mind yourselves, folks. All the best. <laughs>